According to Wikipedia, a musician who plays the flute can be referred to as a flute player, a flautist, a flutist, or, less commonly, a fluter or a flutinist. Oh my god. <laughs> a flutinist? Ooh, that's pretty great, man. Yeah. A fluter. I mean, that has to be it. That has to be it. To all of our listeners who are not aware, one of your podcast hosts is now mildly famous in a certain crossword circle. <laughs> and here's a hint, it's not me. Streeter's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. crossword was featured in the New York Times, so, you know, no big deal. Yeah, yeah, that was really cool. It, it was on, it was last Friday as we we're speaking now, um, March 5th. If any of you want to, to go check it out. I've been a bad friend. I printed it out. I haven't done it yet, though. Um, is there any musical things in there? Are there any there musical is. things in there? there, there yeah, there, okay. there, there are some musical things. And I think particularly one one long entry, I think you'll get a kick out of it. So, All right. Um, you know, uh, a, a few of the people that have solved it who, who know me have, have said that um, that it really, it really sort of reads like a crossword that's sort of full of my interest. So, um, you know, it's not... It's not um, surprising that, that music would show up uh, as, as yeah. do... Is as the do podcast in there? The podcast is not in there, <laughs> is, but, is but, I, but I think it's... one of the <laughs> four across? <laughs> yeah, Dude, that's how we'll really make it, you know, if, if we can we can be put in not, not only as a full entry, but just as an abbreviation, you know, the ITL. Um, that's what yeah. I'm saying. And our episode titles, too. We can find a way to get those yeah, in there. Yeah, <laughs> that would be, that'd be awesome. You also have a lot of other crosswords you've made on your website, right? If people, if yeah. people want to get the crossword on. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, yeah, I, I have, yeah. A ton, I have ton of, tons of crosswords up um, just on the, on the website. I think I even have a blog lying around somewhere. But um, <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it's the, yeah. the internet graveyard of half-baked ideas. <laughs> cool, cool. We'll, of course, link to it if people want to check it out. What else is on your mind, Shreeder? <laughs> well, um, I mean, what else is on my mind? I've, I've been thinking about CPE Bach a little bit in the past few days. Sure, sure. Um, and Carl yeah, Philipp Emanuel Bach? Yes, Car- Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, who is the, not the oldest son, but one of the older sons of, of Johann Sebastian Bach. Um, who we okay. talked a lot about in the source code episode. If, if anyone wants to go back and listen to that, that's still one of my favorites. Um, yeah, that one turned out. I mean, I was about to say it turned turned out better than we thought it would, but I, <laughs> I yeah, think that's um, every single one of our episodes uh, that goes live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, um, no. I um, I, I'm a I'm a big fan of that episode. Yeah, we. I think that was one of those episodes where we got to really get a lot of stuff on the record that we wanted to get on the record. For sure. For sure, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. But he, he's been on my mind Anyways. a little bit because um, I started learning his his um, solo flute sonata recently. Um, I, I've sort of like play, played it here and there just for, for fun because everyone has to, but I've started actually, you know, really studying it and thinking about it. So so he's been on my mind. And um, it was also just his his um, his birthday, I think a couple days ago so so people were i know right we're stuck in this loop here did we uncover a new piece by him now that is... <laughs> yeah that would be hilarious that we should, we should just start a whole new spin-off podcast about 
um, you know, oh, man. forging composers' pieces on their birthdays. But um, uh, oh boy, no. But yeah, yeah, but I... the the nature of social media it's it's interesting, right? Because like you, you know, one does not necessarily want to be sort of beholden to a, a gimmick like birthdays. But the nature mm-hmm. of social media is that um, people will just be tweeting about it, right? So you can't not like yeah, right. on a certain day, like on CPE Box birthday, you know, you can't not right. realize that it's his birthday if you follow like musicians on Twitter because everyone's tweeting about it. Um, right. So, exactly. So it's interesting. Yeah. Like y- your mind does get taken over by um, by like birthday cycles, even even if you try not to. Just the way the world works. There's just no way around it. Yeah. Yeah. But but anyway, so yeah, he, okay. he, he he's he's been on my mind a bit. So so I sort of just jotted a few thoughts down, which which I um, I sent over to to you to read. Yeah, yeah, exactly. no, I mean, so I I do have to say this. I actually don't know a whole lot about CPE Bach. I know a lot about his his dad, <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I don't know, just uh, with maybe I wonder if it's a symptom of the instruments I play. So piano, there's just so much Bach Bach. There's so much. Johann Sebastian Bach to play that you could be working on that your whole life and never get to any CPE Bach. I don't know. I may, maybe that's a BS excuse at the same time. No, I think I'm, that's I'm, fair. I'm, I'm not sure, but okay. I mean, and then trumpet, it's uh, when I, I mean the trumpet broke music. There's some like big broke brass composers. I mean, Bach was one, you know, he wrote trumpet parts and brass parts, you know, the great trumpet part for the second Brandenburg concerto is iconic and asked on every trumpet audition and then you have the composers like Handel and Telemann and Purcell and all those guys that wrote trumpet concertos and trumpet sonatas. So it's like I've, I focus on that sort of stuff and I'm playing broke trumpet things. Or, or even if you transcribe things by um, Vivaldi or something for brass or for trumpet, you know, I've done some of that too. So I guess I've always kind of swerved out of the way of CPE Bach, not intentionally, just because it was never on the roadmap to begin with. Yeah, I, I think that's totally fair. And and honestly, I mean, I, I play an instrument, flute, for, for which there's, um, there are a few pieces that are sort of major parts of the repertoire by him, um, and several okay. pieces that are sort of, you know, minor gems in our, in our repertoire that everyone sort of plays. Um, by CPE Bach, right? Yes, yes, by, by CPE yeah, yeah, Bach. Yeah, cool. um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and even so, I think he sort of gets shortchanged a little bit even by people who who know his music because they have to um he he really he really is is right. overshadowed by by the father and um and that, that's partly what got me thinking about about him you know it's he's hmm. you know there aren't actually that many father-son composer combinations they're they're a lot fewer than you would expect um you know, like right. again, when when I was seeing all these sort of tweets coming in and out about Carl Philip Emanuel Bach, and I was sitting there thinking, poor guy, he was really quite quite talented and dedicated and and you know really great, um, and yeah. yet yet he just by some sort of accident of history is sort of all but forgotten by except by like people who are basically, um, for lack of a better word, specialists. Um, yeah, sure. He's sure. sort of like lost to common knowledge. And, and I was thinking, you know, how often does that happen? And so I was trying to think of other like father-son combinations. And it's just not, you know, really not a, not a thing. Um, I, I sort of even went, right. on, went on a little like Google, Google search. And, and like the, the main ones that I could find were, were obviously um, were the Scarlatti's. 
Alessandro and Domenico Scarlatti, um, who are um, Baroque yeah. composers. And yet, I don't think one of them has more fame than the other. I think they're both fairly obscure. Um, outside sure, of like, sure. outside of like people who really know Baroque music. Um, right, right. There's you know Leopold and and Wolfgang Amadeus, but obviously one mm-hmm. of them one of them won that one. <laughs> And it was actually, this, and it was a son. <laughs> right, right. There's a certain piece of his. I'm not sure if you've heard it. It's, it's brand new. It's brand. It's so fresh. It is. It's the temple uh, marking of Allegro, and it's in the key of D. If you want to try to guess the name of it. <laughs> yeah, K six twenty six. There, there's also the 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 Strausses, the 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 uh, Jan Strauss the first and Jan Strauss the second. But oh, okay, oh good, you saved me. I I thought you were about to blow my mind and say that Johann Strauss and Richard Strauss were related. No, no, they're they're uh, they might be like distantly. <laughs> like you know, all the Habsburgs are yeah, you know, related, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, um... <laughs> uh yeah yeah no okay so yeah it's actually just just um they're i think i think they're both called Johann strauss just one and two or the first and second yeah um i sound like donald trump with the uh the the two corinthians (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i i did think Johann strauss and richard strauss were the same composer when i was in middle school and high school for a while like wow this guy writes some really innovative awesome music and then so, so every here and there, he writes a really tedious, boring waltz. I don't know what's going. On. I think we, we've, I think what's we've all here? been there. I, I think we've all been there, or certainly I have. There's, there's definitely a time when I was young where I was confused. I was like, wait a second, this, yeah. this cannot be the same guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So the Strauss, there's the Gabriellis, right? Oh, I, I, I um, didn't. I'm not aware of this. Yeah, Giovanni Gabrielli is the Gabrielli we all probably know. You know who was. A big um, uh, Italian Baroque composer. Uh, I think he taught Bach, actually. So it comes full circle in a funny mm. way. Um, he, he, yeah, I think Bach went to Venice because it's funny. Before, before Vienna was the capital of music in Europe in the 1700s, in the 1600s, Venice was arguably the capital of music in Europe. It was also one of the most powerful countries or city states in Europe at that time. We think of Venice as a cute Disneyland amusement park now, and it sort of is, yeah. <laughs> but. It's funny, if you go there and you actually like study the history, it's like, wow, this was one of the most powerful Mediterranean seaports back in this day. So, yeah, um, yeah. you know, as with wealth and money comes great art, as we've known with the Medici family, the Habsburgs, and same with, uh, I think it's called the Doge, was that the name of the palace or the family? Yeah, that sounds the right. Doge was the name of like the, like the leader of, of the Venetians. And yeah, yeah, with all that money, they finance a lot of great, a lot of great music. And oh, Sorry, I mean, we'll get back on track, but I do yeah. love how I believe their opera house in Venice is called the Venice Opera House, which it means Phoenix in mm. Italian. And it burnt down. <laughs> 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 but they get extra credit because they rebuilt it yeah. <laughs> exactly as it was, too. So. Nice. <laughs> they really, really had to live up to that one. I, um, I, I bet they take out. Yeah. I, I bet they take out like a good like fire insurance policy on that on it now though. Yeah, it's probably pretty cheap though to get fire insurance in the city of water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. How, how did that burn down in the first place? The first arsonist in history was some <laughs> some Venetian gondolier that would escape by <laughs> a night on his gondola. Yeah, it was Gabrielli. It was Gabrielli. Yeah. Um, 
But no, so 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 he had a he had a son or a father who was who was uh, musical. So yeah, so it was his uncle um, who was Andrea Gabrielli, who was a composer in Venice, and his nephew Giovanni Gabrielli became very successful and famous, and his music is great and performed very often. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, especially um, I will say brass players. Um, lo- I mean, a lot of brass players will say, especially trumpet players, that. Gabrielli was the greatest brass composer ever because in a way like the Baroque was in some sort of sense the golden age of the trumpet I mean, there's so much brass music written back then um, for the natural trumpet things and Gabrielli wrote a lot of antiphonal music for brass to be performed at um, the Basilica San Marco in Venice and so much of it's really really beautiful and and gorgeous Um, and it's almost music you have to perform in, in a cathedral to do it justice and it was written with that in mind because the way Gabrielli put puts rests in there it's time for the reverberation and the echo to settle down I think Bruckner also did that, you know. Yeah, yeah, because Bruckner was an organist, right? He was. Yeah, I, f- I forget. I forget what what he was, but um, but in his in his symphonies, like the the rests in the parts in the orchestral parts, um, really are perfect for for the hall that he for the for the hall that he was um you know hearing them played in. So. Um, yeah, interesting. There's a yeah. few examples of that throughout throughout musical history, and it's it's really interesting. Because it's not it's not that common to to write a piece for like for for a specific hall, you know. Yeah, and it's one of those. It becomes interesting when it's um, when even if like the music of Gabrielli and a lot of the music of Bach, you know, um, it, you know, maybe he wasn't consciously thinking about it. He was just, he was just thinking of the practicality of it. Like he's writing a piece, he knows where it's going to be performed. That's where he works, so he just takes into account the acoustics, right? Mm-hmm. So, but because of that that adds an interesting layer to the piece and adds to the even more layers of interpretive decisions you kind of have to make when you're playing that kind of music, right? Right, um, right. Anyway, the bigger topic I think you may have been getting towards was, yeah, like um, families of composers, so... <laughs> oh, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we got sidetracked on that. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, it's, it's obviously fairly common for, for music to sort of run within the family. Um, mm-hmm. But in terms of father-son... Um, duos where both composers have have legit like recognizability you know they're not merely musicians but they're like actual famous composers um, re- really mm-hmm. less um, co- common than I than I had expected because I just never thought about it um, and and sort of my my sort of like half half joking question was um, what must it have been like to to be Carl Philip Emanuel Bach um, like <laughs> how how sucky would it be um, to ha- to be a composer? Like all things aside, like how sucky would it be to yeah. like have a job and your dad is like the best ever, pretty much at that job, right? And and you know it. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, no, it's it's interesting because 
you know, that's that's how it like shook out historically that, that now we sort of recognize Johann Sebastian to be the greater. But at, yeah. at, at the time, yeah. um, Carl, Carl Philip Emanuel was much more recognized as a composer. Um, Bach was was sort of known, obviously, and like well respected as, um, you know, one of the greatest organists in Europe um, and, and a great mm-hmm. sort of cantor at the church in Leipzig, uh, St. Thomas, where he worked. Um but, you know, in his own time, he was sort of seen as, as sort of old-fashioned. Um, he was writing like 17th century music, basically, um, in the 18th century. But um, Carl Philip Emanuel was, was like all, he was, he was sort of like writing music that was all the, all the vogue. And, um, you know, he, he influenced <laughs> people like, like Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven. Like they all looked up to C.P.E. Bach a lot, you know. Which is mm. it's, it's really interesting that like someone can can just sort of get lost in the sands of time, but be like as um, well recognized as he was like in his day. Again, maybe it's just a symptom of just the instruments I played and the teachers I had and the stuff I was into. But yeah, I can't. Yeah, I didn't really play much. There's that one piano etude everyone plays in C minor by C.P.E. Bach. It was even in a Breaking Bad episode, I think. Um, oh, okay. I, yeah, I don't. Yeah, Solvejado or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's something oh, like okay. that. But I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's a, it's not a, it's, it's an etude that sounds like an etude. So <laughs> it's nothing actually like ever perform. Um, I mean, with Bach, right? I mean, he was, yeah. It wasn't until much later that people cared about him. Sadly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a. The, the, there's kind of like a half myth that he was basically forgotten until Mendelssohn sort of okay. um, he found his um, manuscript for the St. Matthew Passion in, in the Dresden Library yeah. and performed it yeah it's not exactly true I mean he wasn't he wasn't forgotten um, he was he was well loved and respected and seen as great by by like fellow composers for example mm-hmm. like Beethoven had had really nice things to say about um, Johann Sebastian, and I think one time yeah. even um, performed the Well Tempered Clavier, um, which oh, I would really? have loved. Okay. To, I, I would have loved to be at that concert. Damn, um, like recordings I wish existed. Yeah, yeah, for real, wow. for real. <laughs> but but in terms of like the the general public, um, it, he he really was not well known. There, there was a sort of Bach revival. The first Bach revival was happening um, at at the time that Mendelssohn sort of found this manuscript. Um, yeah. So th- there's a difference between public recognition and sort of recognition recognition within composer circles, but e- but even there, um, I think a lot of the admiration of Bach, like Beethoven, he called Bach, uh, he called like Johann Sebastian Bach the father of harmony, and I think it was like an academic appreciation of him. Like mm-hmm. if you're yeah. a composer, you can't not sort of admire academically what Bach achieved. But in terms of who he is now. Um, where sort of everyone, he, like he's one of the few composers that pretty much everyone knows about at least, and can recognize yeah, a right. few tunes from. You know that kind of thing would have been unheard of. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, I mean, with Bach, I always thought how interesting it is that, um, and maybe this is Bach. Okay, I'm trying to think of pieces that are like very pop culture um, that were written before Bach. And I'm having a hard time. I don't think there's really any, right? Like pieces we would all recognize. Yeah. You know? yeah so I, right, when we have... I'm thinking of something. 
Right, right, yeah. When we have, you know, the Takata and Fugue in, in I think that has to be in D minor, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's in D minor. The Takata yeah. and Fugue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've been second guessing my key knowledge lately because I've been wrong a few times <laughs> as of late. Oh, boy. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, so like those sort of pieces, I mean, I, I do think it's really remarkable in a sense how music, how good music can last. You know, I mean, we saw Bach played at our weddings nowadays. Yeah. I mean, it was written hundreds of years ago, you know. other avenue we could go on is talking about the organ which is something i've been mm. wanting to talk to for talk, talk about for a while um because yeah. i think the organ is like the the most badass instrument ever <laughs> i think it's just so freaking awesome i mean it's so it's so historic right it's just so it's just been in europe for so long there's just so many like very old organs and things i love how how just freaking huge it is i mean it's built into a building Right. Uh, there's a really good YouTube video by um, a YouTube account called Sideways. And he tries to answer the question. It was on this past Halloween, but he tries to answer the question, why do organs sound scary? And hmm. it's super fascinating. It's a really good breakdown because part of it has to do with Hollywood, right? How Hollywood portrayed organs and still portrays organs and how that made its way to like Phantom of the Opera <laughs> and things. And the conclusion he basically comes to is it, the organ, the reason the Takata and Fugue sounds scary and menacing and just organ background music can sound so scary is it's not so much the organ itself. It's because of who's playing it. And so when you think about, you know, so, someone who plays the organ, it's one person that has the power of an orchestra behind them that's controlling every detail that because of the way organs just are, the way you have to practice an organ, you spend a lot of time by yourself, you know, in weird hours practicing the organ. <laughs> uh, it's not interfere with church services and things, especially in like medieval or not. I mean, old era or old towns, old cities in Europe, right? The organ can be heard across the city when it's being played. So it's just like one person having all this power. And that very naturally led itself to the Hollywood sort of um, the scary organ Halloween music. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think to to add to the, I have to check out this video, but to add to the list of reasons why the organ is, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it's scary to me. Um, mm -hmm. I would say that it's sort of, it's monumental, maybe. Like you were saying, it's built into the to the building, and there's there's a sort of grandiosity, especially with some of the great um, organs in sort of you know old European cathedrals. Yeah, it's it's huge and and it's sort of it's in you think of it in these sort of grandiose settings where the fear of God is already instilled in you. Um, like right, you're, right. You're in, a, you're in a church and there's an organ and it, it's it's loud. You know, if, if yeah, yeah. 
that that matters yeah. you know that matters in how it's perceived um it is a like if you're hearing it in person it it literally like shakes you to to, to your core um right. and even when right. you're hearing a recording the sound is um jarring it's it is it's not it's it it has the power of an orchestra but it's it's got a density that that orchestras don't have Mm-hmm. you know yeah right right um and then you know that and then a lot of the music written for it um the gold the golden age of organ music is is um you know bach was at the tail end of that so it's old music it's very old and it's, yeah, it's yeah. sort of complicated and contrapuntal you know it's got a lot of things going on at once and um it's it's almost written to be complicated it's written to sort of explore how complicated music had become um, so I think right, all, all, right. all of these things um, contribute to the organ in general, just being an instrument that is, uh, it, it has a gravitas that like a flute just doesn't have, you know. <laughs> Do, do you do you have any um, any favorite organ pieces or like any favorite organs? Yeah. Um, like, so th- those are two completely different questions. So let's take one at a time. Any favorite fa- favorite organ pieces? Yeah. Well, before we get into that, I do think it's important to remember. Sure. And I even, I mean, I think a lot of students forget this, and I did too. But Bach was an organist, right? A lot of these composers right. were organists. That that was how they actually paid the bills. Their thing was playing was playing organ, and. Um, and, uh, you know, we've weighed into the period instrument debate before, but um, kind of like after Bach, I guess, so after, you know, the 1700s-ish, you know, mid-1700s-ish, you could, like, be a composer now as, like, your full-time gig. But before that, composing was just sort of a side hustle, right? And um, I just think that gets forgotten a lot, and it's, yeah, it's and, important and, to note. And it's, it's also important to note that that um, the the composer was not given... At a certain time, in, in, in Bach's time, maybe, again, Bach was maybe at the tail, tail end of this, but the the composer would not be given um, credence if if he were not also a great instrumentalist. And usually mm-hmm. this instrument was the organ because it is the king of, of, of all, all, all instruments. And, and vice versa, like uh, a lot of organists were not given um, credence if they were not great composers. Um Hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. And yeah. actually, like in this in this little um, piece that I wrote on um, CPE Bach, uh, I I ended with with a um, a bit that maybe if you'll indulge me, I'll, I'll read it here. It's just yeah. a, a yeah, part of it. it. But um, the the backstory is that um, basically someone I forget his name um, said that uh, Handel was a better organist than Bach, um, which is it must be insanity. Um, and, and CPE Bach, basically he, he blows up and he writes this letter. Um, it's, it's quite long. Uh, I've only like excerpted a part of it, but he, he gives a bunch of reasons why like this guy was foolish to say such a thing. And he lands some sick burns on handle. But I thought the part that was really interesting is, um, is that he actually, in his defense of Bach as an organist, he actually talks about their compositions. Hmm, Which okay. you would not. I think it's it's a change in attitude to huh. to the way that is perceived today. Like he says, and I quote here: 
Seriously, the differences could hardly be greater. Did Handel ever write trios for two manuals and pedals? Did he write fugues for five or six voices for keyboard alone? Certainly not. Consequently, no comparison can be made in this respect, the, the disparity being too great. People need only look at the clavier and organ compositions of both men. And this was in a defense of Bach's organ playing. Um, oh, so it, it was at this time when, when um, the, the art of playing music and composing music, it was all sort of interwoven together in a way that it, it's really sort of fractured by now. Um, and, mm. and the organ is a big part of that because um, whatever you compose, whatever you have in your mind, you can play it on an organ, right? Like the, yeah, organ, right. the organ will <laughs> always be game for whatever you have in your head. In a way that, again, like a flute or a trumpet, sadly, cannot. Like I, I can't. Exactly. Even, I yeah. can't even compose a canon and play it on my flute, <laughs> let let alone a, a six part fugue. And and then the range of an organ is just ridiculous. I mean, it can go lower than the human ear can hear. Right? You just yeah. feel the building shaking around you. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and the um, pedals. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen a great organist work work the pedals. It's it's insanity. But yeah, you you can it, you know. It's a workout. It's a workout. Yeah. Like you know. It's, it's, <laughs> Yeah, it's uh no, I mean yeah, it's not just a piano pedal. It's a full keyboard down there. You're playing yes. with your feet. Yeah, it's yeah, nuts. I, I suppose we should have made that clear. Yeah, it's not. It's, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the whole like baseline yeah. basically is being done um, with his with the organist's feet. You also have to be an engineer in a way to be an organist, at least back then, right? When you were like running your own yeah. one-man gig, you had to know how to redirect air to which column of pipes and frequency stuff, and uh, and um, you know, and that would sometimes influence the composition, right? Where in order to play this this passage, it was a little too tough to pull out the stops in time, you know, to kind of switch octaves and things. So they had to find alternate musical solutions around it and things. Um, yeah. that's where the expression comes from pulling out all the stops. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, is, that, is that really where that comes from? Yeah. Yeah. It's oh, the organ cool. stops. Yeah. So if you pull out all the stops, if you pull out every stop, so there's like 50 of them, these are like almost look like doorknobs right. on, on, a, on an organ. You pull out all of them. I believe that means you're basically channeling air into every pipe available. Right. So, or every pipe section, every pipe group, cause the pipes are kind of in groups. I've I've actually always interpreted it as being the the etymology of that as as um, being related to the organ, but I I, I never assumed I, I always assumed that that was just me being like a musician. I assumed that the real thing would be something with like I don't know, cannons or something. Yeah, like a train <laughs> but, locomotive or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah something boring. But, yeah, yeah. Um, no, but but I'll I'll put it in the show notes. Um, I'll scan I'll scan the stuff. I, I have this fat Bach biography sitting over there. Um, and one of his gigs, um, one of his gigs when he was starting out, because um, he, he didn't actually go to school. Um, I, I, this is a quick mm. side note, but, but Bach didn't actually go to school, which is why all of his sons um, did. They all got law degrees before they went on mm. to be composers. Bach knew oh, really? His, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, because Bach, <laughs> Bach knew from his own experience that um, even if, you know, you could be the greatest musician in Europe and people will treat you like a slave if you don't have a degree. So, <laughs> Schreeder. Must I say the obvious? You were asking me why his sons didn't become as good a composer as he did. <laughs> you know, now, now that I'm thinking about Exhibit it, you gotta, a. You, gotta, yeah, you, got a, you got a point. <laughs> to quote some legal speak for him. <laughs> yeah. I rest my case. <laughs> They're all suits by day. 
they, yeah, they, 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 they all wear suits, suits and training. Yeah. Um, but interesting. I actually had yeah. no idea. Wow. I didn't know they yeah. all had law degrees. Yeah. So, so, so Bach didn't, he was basically self-taught. He had some teachers, he had some teachers that he right. like, studied with, but no formal mm-hmm. education. Right. Um, so his, his sort of, the start of his career was, um, it, it was like a meteoric rise in some ways in terms of his recognition, but in terms of actually getting like a stable income and such, it was, it was a slower start. So one, one mm-hmm. of his gigs was that he would, he would travel around Europe, um, basically as like an organ consultant, people will say like, Hey, we're having an oh. issue with this organ. Can you come here? We heard that you're really good at this thing. Can you come here and tell us how we might be able to fix it? Or we, we actually have, um, commission repairs on it. Could you, we have like this much money to spend. Could you come in here and, um, tell us what best to, to spend it on? Or like, could you recalibrate oh, interesting. this? Organ? So yeah, to, this goes to your point about how, you know, you do have to be a little bit of an engineer as well. Um, literally like Bach, you know, he, he made like yeah. one of his side hustles was, was going around basically being like an organ repair slash organ construction, like consultant, um, which oh, is, which is really cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Dude. Oh, what a cool job being an organ consultant. <laughs> yeah. And it sounds, I mean, I don't want to like speak out of school here. I guess he's like long dead, so it doesn't matter, but it sounds like a great gig because basically it was like an opportunity for him to like travel to like a different city in Germany check out the organ for yeah. like a couple of hours but then like you'd have like a stipend from his like consulting employer or whatever to like go like party at the tavern and just like it sounds like a great gig <laughs> oh yeah wow okay yeah that's that's really cool like it's um if you remember from our music school days but uh yeah organ the organ majors always had the craziest sleep schedules right because there's only <laughs> yeah. so many organs on campus there's like one there's one recital hall that had that had a big organ in it but then there are a bunch of like organ practice rooms like four of them three or four of them and they were given like four hour blocks to practice but yours might be if you're a freshman you you get you know the bottom of the totem pole right so you would get like the 3 a.m to 7 a.m block to practice you know on a tuesday night right so the organ majors were always up at weird hours and sleeping during normal hours yeah and I, i always got the feeling that they were smarter than the rest of us um, they really knew something we all did it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I had this, this pet theory that like, even like the greatest flutist on the planet, musically speaking, is probably like only as competent as like a mediocre pianist and really like a subpar, <laughs> like a really subpar organist. Like if you just picked up like an organ student at IU, he probably knows like more about the depths of music and music theory yeah. than like Emmanuel Paud or something. <laughs> Cause at a certain point, yeah. like, you know, it's one thing to like know music theory academically, but if you play an organ, mm-hmm. you like, you live music theory. <laughs> yeah. Like no, you're, absolutely. You're, no, you, you like know. really have to, really have to know the workings of it. Right. And, like in your fingers. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's funny. Cause yeah, I remember the organ majors, like our first like counterpoint exams they'd be like that kid that completes the exam in four minutes and walks out <laughs> and we're all like struggling for an hour <laughs> yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly just do it you know in his sleep because he was doing it in his sleep you know just with an organ in front of him um at three in the morning but yeah, yeah. so um an organ too i i, I think it's just kind of cool right because organs one of those instruments that's really infiltrated pop culture right so i mean we, we talked a bit about the music of organ music and pop culture and how organs sound like halloween and scary and Dracula played an organ in which movie? Was it one of the original Draculas? Or Do you know if he plays it in the novel? That's all that matters. Oh, I don't. I don't. Do you? 
I do not, actually. You said that's all that matters, but the Rebecca film is just as relevant as the Rebecca novel to build off our last episode. <laughs> true, true. You, you, you got me on that, actually. I would, I would argue yeah. <laughs> that, that Dracula really works better as a movie than a, than a book. Because when, when I think of Dracula, I think immediately of both the, the Murnau and the Herzog Nosferatu movies. Um, oh, gotcha. You know, yeah. Which is, yeah, yeah. not, not mean, Bram Stoker's novel. <laughs> but no, but like, so Oregon, yeah, I mean, there's Oregon in uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea on his submarine. There's an Oregon that Davy Crockett plays in um, Pirates of the Caribbean and stuff. There's so many movies with organs in it. And yeah, and in uh, again, like weddings, right? You know, the, the, um, the Wagner, um, what's it called? <laughs> I always said funeral march, but that's a different <laughs> march. <laughs> the, the wedding march. Um, yeah, the wedding march. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah, because then there's also Mendelssohn's wedding march. Yeah, right? I think the yeah. famous one is is the Wagner one that everyone plays. It's from Lohengrin. Okay, gotcha. And then the the Mendelssohn one's famous too, though. Quite, right? quite famous, a... yeah. But I think the yeah, if I think yeah. if we just had the bridal march, everyone is going to be thinking of. Oh, right. And then I think the recessional march when everyone's leaving and heading to the after party, <laughs> <laughs> or the reception. There's... Sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we all know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's usually the Mendelssohn one. Yeah. yeah. No, and organs. Um, and then there's been some great orchestral works that have organs in it, right? The Organ Symphony by Saint Saens, his third symphony. There's um, Zarathustra by Richard Strauss, famous most for being in the movie 2001: Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's epic organ stuff going on there. brass stuff and and i always felt too as a brass player i have a connection to the organ the organ's sort of a brass instrument yeah. it's actually more, more more like a flute than it is a brass instrument like physically that's the way you know a flute makes a noise right is air going over the tone hole that creates you know a vibrating column of sound right that's how an organ works but really the tone the timbre is closer to brass section so yeah that's why a, a lot of bach works really well transcribed for like brass ensemble it's something to do with the density of air um yeah like, yeah that must I, be I don't it. think you can you can really get it's the same principle with the way the flute is played but you know 90 percent of the air i'm making that number up but most of the air that you blow across the hole of the flute is lost right so right, right. it's it's humanly impossible to kind of get the kind of density that you get sort of in the organ 
um, in the same range, which is why it sounds a lot sort of shriller and and airier. Um, But there are some, you know, there's some flutists like Denis Boryakov. I'm going to, I'm going to name him. Um, He is a, he's in LA these days, right? He's a beast. And uh, you know, he's one of those guys that when you look at, when you watch him play, it really looks like, He's blowing into the flute like a trump, like a like a brass instrument, and it sounds like oh, really? it too. Like he he sounds, oh, he's, really? he sounds kind of like an organ when he plays. It's it's impressive. He the kind of density of sound that he gets. It's it's brass like. Um, oh, interesting, interesting. Most flutists know. I, I don't think we have the, the um the sort of lungs that that an organ has. To what you were saying earlier, yeah, when organs, especially in, in that time of Europe and stuff, you know, the 1700s or whatnot, yeah, they really were marvels of engineering. I mean, th- think about pre-electricity societies building those things. <laughs> yeah. That's, and and that's beauty, tough. too. I mean, yeah, and, that's you, true. You know, there's, some, there's true. some really beautiful churches um, with, be- with beautiful organs. I'm trying to, do you mind if I take a second to um, try to find one specifically? Sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because it's something, it, there's also a beauty in the, I mean, I'm sure you, you meant this too, right? There's a beauty in that no two organs are the same. Yeah. The organ consultant, damn. Oh, that'd be such a cool gig. <laughs> I'm still thinking about that. So yeah, there's a, there's a, um, um, a, a famous um, organ builder whose name was Carl Joseph Reep, R-I-E-P-P. <sighs> Um, and sounds like an organ builder. Yeah, he he was sort of uh, contemporaries with Bach, um, and he was okay. a sort of very renowned um, organ builder. And and he has one um, in in what's called the Audubon Abbey um, in in I guess I don't know where in Europe, maybe maybe it's probably somewhere in Germany. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's probably in Audubon. It's probably a city in Germany. Yeah. Oh, I'm looking at it now. Isn't it awesome? That, oh, that is an organ, my friends. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. It's almost, it's not as, um, what's the word? It's not as concentrated as you usually think of an organ. Exactly. Right, right. The pipes are a bit more spread out. It's yeah. got this sort of... That's beautiful. Uh, it's got this Rococo interior. That is cool. That's, yeah. That is a cool organ. And, we'll, of course, and, link to it down in the notes. But, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and there's a series of videos yeah. on YouTube of Carl Richter, who is a wonderful organist of the 20th century, um, playing mm-hmm. a bunch of Bach yeah. on it. He plays the Toccata in D minor, the Toccata and Fugue in D minor, as okay. well as the, the C minor, um, Passacaglia and Fugue, and some other stuff, I think. But, man, that is, that's one of those organs that... Um, I think it's an organ that Bach very well could have played on. Or at least he, he, he could have consulted on it. <laughs> at least he could have consulted on it, yeah. <laughs> Um, oh wow but that that's the other thing about you know organs they have this yeah. you yeah. know to, okay. to some degree like violins and, and cellos have this as well um mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. there's a sort of the enormity of time is at least in terms of like classical music um like western classical music it's sort of on you when you when you look at certain instruments like you know your your Stradivari yeah. and stuff like that um yeah but it's something even more grandiose about an organ because um because it is at a place like it's not the, the, the Stradivarius, right. you know, it's, you know, it always has like the story of like being moved around from 
private collector yeah. through like a mistress yeah. through some sort of shady yeah. dealing here and it ends up and, 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 and then stolen yeah. off a porch there's always some story <laughs> there's always some story like that but the organ it's it almost seems like a like it could be the site of a pilgrimage you know uh there's something if you if you really treasure this music going going to see certain of the really old organs in europe is almost a is almost a pilgrimage so yeah exactly no um um, I remember when I was going to um, uh, Notre Dame in Paris, uh, like five years ago or so. Yeah, I, was, I went in when like a mass was going on, so the organ was doing its thing. Yeah, it was, it was really cool, really powerful, and it's kind, it's kind of cool because it's to think that yeah, this organ was designed for this building, but at the same time, the building was also designed for the organ. Absolutely, <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, just look at this one, like the, the interior and the organ, like the Rococo interior and the organ are kind of, they are, they sort of grow out of the same thing. They're inseparable, right? It's like a one architectural beat is this whole building that just happens to also have an organ or yeah. the way I like to look at it, an organ that just happens to have a building wrapped <laughs> around it. <laughs> exactly. The organ needs a house. Build the organ first. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, no, it's, it's cool. And, um, and also, yeah, I mean, organs, I, I've, yeah, I, I fooled around. I played around on one like once, but yeah, they're just, it's such a feat of musicianship to be able to play one well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's one of those instruments where, you know, the, the I, I love the flute, obviously, but the, the worst part about mm -hmm. it is that um, there's so much music that I can't play just on my own. I need a lot of other people to play it. But if you can play the organ, I mean, you can just sit down and play through like the, the St. Matthew Passion. You don't need you yeah. don't need anyone else if you're an organist, um, and that yeah. may be contributing to the sort of the the sort of aloofness of the organist that we know, and um, right. maybe that's also part of the, the sort of like quote unquote scariness of the organ. Um, Dracula works alone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think there's two categories of organs: organs in cathedrals, and then organs in concert halls. Mm. Organs in cathedrals, I mean, to this day, but especially when they were built back in the days, right? It's um, they served a very practical purpose. It was to accompany a Catholic mass, right? Uh, but it's funny, organs in concert halls, they serve a very musical purpose, right? It's just to, it's usually not used except when the piece requires an organ. <laughs> a lot of organs in concert halls are cool, but yeah, they're not as cool as the cathedral ones because the cathedral ones are just there's more epic. I mean, there's there's just no way around it. <laughs> just. I do have to say, I think that something, something was artistically lost with, maybe, I, I want to put a huge caveat, but, you know, I think something was artistically lost with the sort of enlightenment rationalism. There's some, some parts of the Baroque sort of artistic mentality that I, I fear that we can't really tap into anymore because we sort of live in a post-God world. But, um, you know, when you look at these sort of like, complex um figurations of bach where he's just sort of endlessly going on these aimless it seems like seemingly aimless um like harmonic tangents basically they need no explanation yeah. except for the fact that they are beautiful and they somehow make sense musically you know it's funny you talk about um baroque music um you know the things that were kind of lost in the baroque thinking which a loss in broke thinking meant, you know, a loss in the art that was created that we call Baroque. So it's funny you say that too, right? Because if you want to go out and hear Baroque music, it's not the easiest thing in the world, right? To go, it, especially maybe up until 20 years ago or something. I mean, 
you know, there weren't really performances of the Brandenburg Concertos by Bach. I mean, Bach performances at all. Bach recitals. There wasn't really performances of the music of Purcell or like Handel's water music. You really had to go seek those out if you wanted to find them, right? Mm -hmm. um, now I think it's gotten a bit better. I think a lot of the big orchestras will have like a Baroque concert series or something, which I think is cool. And so, sometimes it's a Baroque ensemble that comes in place. Sometimes it's members of the orchestra that that is playing a Baroque setting. So so I will say I've, I've been getting a lot into Baroque music as of late or a lot back into it, I'd say. And I will say if you need... For all your all your um all your thoughts that the broke is lost, Streeter, I have one word for you. Jazz. <laughs> right? And I think jazz musicians naturally gravitate towards the broke. Um Chick Korea, who sadly just passed away, um, legendary jazz pianist, yeah. Very suddenly, I mean, at least I didn't know. It it, it wasn't well known. Um he, he was sick until I just saw on Twitter he he died. So mm. um but anyway, incredible pianist. Very good Bach player too. Um, he's a Latin jazz, or just, sorry, just a jazz jazz um, pianist. But he was really good at playing Bach and stuff, and really marvelled in it. And you find jazz musicians playing Baroque, um, at least listening to Baroque, and definitely at least thinking about Baroque. And for a few reasons, if I may, I think there's two big ones. One is Baroque is very much. Um, when you play Baroque music, one of the challenges, one of the things that makes playing Baroque music really tough, if you're playing Handel's water music, just to pick a piece, when you're playing Baroque music, there really is a feel and a groove you have to achieve that's not written on the page, right? You know, mm -hmm. there's, um, uh, and it's definitely an adjustment, especially when you're coming from, let's pick a great composer, Mahler, right? Mahler puts so much on the page from the tempo to to articulation, to orchestration, to accents, to all that stuff, right? All on the page. With Baroque, it's pretty bare bones, and you really have to master the style and the flow. And, and that takes time, and it takes a lot of practice to get that right. And a lot of listening. A lot of listening, a lot of study. To, yeah. to the right people, because no, no music, <laughs> I would contend, is more maligned by people who <laughs> purport to love it but, than, than the Baroque. We've talked about them in the past um the all Bach society right they're so great they're so great and they don't only play Bach because there's that awesome performance on youtube of them playing vivaldi's four seasons and yeah it's yeah. yeah that might be my favorite recording slash performance of 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 that piece um same here It's really good, but I think what makes it even better, what makes it so great, is just in comparison to all the terrible recordings. Um, <laughs> maybe yeah. I, I shouldn't say terrible, but like not as good, like bad recordings of Avaldi's music. I mean, there's just a lot out Let's there. Let's go with uninspired. You know? Uninspired. Because they play it the same way they'd play anything else, right? And yeah. maybe in, in the classical genre, maybe even, even the romantic, like when you're playing... When you're in the orchestra playing you know, Don Juan by Richard Strauss, you could sort of play it the same way you'd play a Tchaikovsky symphony, right? I mean, yeah, that's fair, I, I think, right? 
Yeah, I mean, okay, <laughs> I'm I'm kind of nervous saying that, but I don't care. No, no, no. But no, no, no. I, I agree with you. I think. Okay. Yeah, but when you're playing Baroque and then the composers within the in the Baroque and then the kind of piece it is, I mean, there's all these very distinct styles that that they don't really cross over and you just have to really be an intelligent musician. That sounds very arrogant, but you really can't just be a good instrumentalist. You really have to be a musician and really master the, the uh, everything beyond the ink. That's certainly why, I mean, for me, Baroque music is my favorite music to play and probably also my favorite music to listen to. And this is not only because of, of Johann Sebastian Bach, who is, who is, you know, my, my God. Um, mm-hmm. And I think he's probably most musicians' God. But even beyond that, I, I love I love Baroque music. Um, and it's it leaves a lot of room for you in a way that yeah. playing someone like Debussy, um, whom I, I love. I, I love Debussy, and I love listening to him, and, and I love playing him. But um, it doesn't leave you a lot of room in terms of how to do something. Where mm-hmm. with with Baroque music, there's a paradox. There's at, on the one hand, there's there's a sort of language that you have to learn by just sort of practicing and thinking about it and listening to it. Um, right. That's very precise, like what you said. But once you have sort of cultivated an intuition for for playing the Baroque, there it opens up like a whole field uh, of like where you can be now expressive and creative in a way that I don't think you can be for any music up until jazz. Right. Um, right. And I think that's, that's, you know, that's, that's exactly why I think we're, we're coming into, I think jazz is sort of ushering in, uh, jazz has ushered in like a sort of new Baroque that we're still, we're still sort of like living in, but mm-hmm. you know, there's so many, there's like, take, take the, the problem of not the problem, t- take the, um, the aspect of, of playing Baroque music that is, that is ornamentation. Yeah, you know, right. it's, it's expected that you, of course, it's expected that you ornament on a on a repeated passage, but but also I think it's 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 also totally expected that you ornament just throughout the piece, but tastefully and interestingly. Mm-hmm. Um, if you listen to the all of Bach people, for example, the way they play Vivaldi, some of their slow movements are unrecognizable because they take the chord progression and run with it, and they basically recompose it. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and that's something really interesting you can do with, say, like an all Baroque concert that you couldn't do if you were doing other composers where the ornamentation can be different for every performance of it. You know, it lives in the moment much more than other music. And you can do ornaments um, where you you reference other pieces in the program that you're playing. Like if I could be playing like a few Telemann fantasies and then like the Bach partita. And in, in the Bach partita, I can do some ornaments that sort of wink at the Talmud fantasies and vice versa, you know, it, it creates you, it, it, it creates the sort of in the now creativity. Once you've gotten the language, once you've sort of become familiar with the language, it creates um, a freedom that I just don't, I don't feel playing anything else. You know, maybe, maybe someone is listening who's like a, an expert in playing Debussy and they'll say the same thing <laughs> happens if you really get into that language. And I just haven't gotten into that language. But for me, there's something special about playing Baroque music. Everything you just said over the past two minutes, just substitute Baroque for jazz and it makes perfect sense. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, A, right, we have this, you know, in Baroque music, you have to master the groove of it, which is just the same in jazz, right? You have to master swing. Swing isn't written down. It's not written in the music, right? Like when you're playing 
a swing passage of, of just eighth notes. That's all just written as straight eighth notes. But you know, I mean, you know, all right, is this a big band era swing chart we're all playing? Is this kind of a later swing? Is this Dixieland where we're going to swing really hard and really anticipate every beat? It's not written in the music. You as a performer, you have to know. And of course, you're also giving them the freedom to make that judgment call and your own space to be creative with it. So jazz, it's mastering a groove, a feel, right? Just like Baroque is. And in Baroque, the equivalent is called inegal, inequality mm. or inequal. Um, it's where where you the the value of the notes are not equal. So if you see something like the the cello suite prelude, you know it's all sixteenth mm-hmm. notes. actually wrong to play it just you know that that wouldn't be very much in the style it still works that way because of the structure of Bach but yeah um there's there's a way that um you have to just it's impossible to describe you just have to hear it and then you have to learn it and and be able to sort of express it where the notes all have a slightly different value it's all sort of unequal but and yet the this is crucial in jazz as well. The, the the pocket is crucial in a way that it's just not in romantic music. Um, right. The 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 pocket, the groove, whatever you call it, it is of paramount yeah. importance in baroque music and in jazz, and I would say in pretty much nothing else. Yeah. And then the other aspect too is improvisation, right? And so there's a great interview with Bill Evans, legendary jazz pianist, who <laughs> he got his start. Like I mean. Like, there's no better way to kill it than to get your start by um, being recruited by Miles Davis to be the pianist on Kind of Blue. <laughs> yeah, he was like 26 or something. <laughs> and it's like, wow, damn. So it's like playing with John Coltrane, Miles Davis, Cannibal Adderley, John Chambers on bass. I mean, yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> and it's still, it's an incredible uh, yeah, debut. I mean, it just goes down. As, it's one of the greatest albums ever, right? And just, wow, yeah. there's this. This kid. Um, but Bill Evans was a classically trained pianist. He went to the Manus Conservatory in New York. And uh, and when I say classically trained pianist, I mean, he was a very classical, classical pianist. Like he he did original transcriptions of like Stravinsky ballets for solo piano and things like he was. I don't mean he was just like a classically trained pianist is what I'm trying to say. He was actually a classical yeah, pianist. Right. Sure. Um, so. Yeah, but then he got into jazz after that and um, did the coolest thing ever. He just got like a, a one-room apartment in Brooklyn somewhere and just practiced for four years straight and learned jazz and is now one of the greatest. Every jazz pianist studies Bill Evans. He just quince- He's just so canon. You have to study the playing, the technique, the improvisation of Bill Evans. And um, there's a great interview with him, with his brother, who was, uh, I want to say, a high school music teacher. Um, yeah. So it's his brother in- interviewing him. And Bill Evans, he says something that I always thought, but didn't really quite know how to say it. He says, you know, what so many people get wrong is that jazz is not a genre. Jazz is not a style. Jazz is a process. And is it is the process of making a minute's music in a minute's time, like making music in real time, right? And I thought, ah, oh, that is well put. That is very well put. <laughs> but I think it's more of a revival 
in a different form of what went on in classical music before. In other words, in the 17th century, there was uh, a great deal of improvisation in classical music, as mm -hmm. you know. And because of the fact that there were no electrical recording techniques or any way to permanize or to catch music mm -hmm. and to uh, record it, mm -hmm. the music was written so that it could be uh, permanized that mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And uh, so slowly but surely, the, r the writing of the music and the interpreters of the written music uh, gave way to more and more interpretation and more and more uh, cerebral composition and, and less and less improvisation until finally, Improvisation became a lost art in classical music, and we have only the composer As you're and the interpreter. But jazz, in a way, has uh, resurrected that process. Improvisation was huge in, in the in the Baroque. I mean, it, there's improvisation everywhere. Uh, I mean, basically all of all of Bach's. Any any time that you see Bach doing something like the Toccatas, that's all improvised. Yeah, um, right. Like right. Like the Toccata and Fugue. You know, the Fugue part is composed, but the Toccata is is improvised. So um, yeah, the role of improvisation, and also um, um, in in Bill Evans, he talks in this documentary um, quite a bit about that. How all of Western music was at once improvised. When you go back to the Renaissance and just um, music in the street, music by the court gestures and things. And for most of the history of Western music, the majority of it was improvised. It was only to, I mean, the Baroque. Yeah, a lot of Baroque was written down, but improvisation was still, I think, at the spirit of Baroque music. With classical music, mm -hmm. the, the classical era, in the late 1700s, that's when it changed. That's when it got firmer in things. Um, and then, yeah, as you mentioned earlier this episode, there's kind of a resurgence of improvisation when jazz was becoming a thing. So it, because of, of that, though, because of like the improvisation naturally leads itself to individuality. And what you briefly said like a few minutes ago, I think is really sharp, where the role of the musician, not just the composer, but the role of the musician, who often is the composer in Baroque and in jazz. Um, but yeah, the role of the musician in jazz and in Baroque is just as important, if not more important than the role of the composer who's playing it. Exactly. Charlie Parker playing Yardbird Suite versus John Coltrane playing Yardbird Suite. It's going to be two different pieces of music, frankly, even though it's the same piece that was compose and, and Brooks the same way, right? The role of the, whoever's performing at that time is, is, is big. Exactly. And, and that's why it's so, it's so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's so nice. It, it feels, it feels really nice to play Baroque music in a way that it, mm -hmm. at least for me, it doesn't feel as fun to, to play other music. Yeah. Um, not that I don't enjoy it. I, I enjoy playing pretty much anything, you know, on my flute. Right. Right, but there's a there's a there's a special kind of like rewarding quality to playing to playing baroque music, and um, I don't actually I don't play like that much in the way of jazz, and I don't like consider myself a jazzer. But but I feel quite close to the soul of a jazzer because if I were to have a specialty, it would be baroque music, mm -hmm. and if if I were to say that I had a specialty, it would be baroque music, and um, it's it's that's a lot of it. I mean. 
it's it's hard to it's hard to to sort of be creative in in a lot of other music you can, in a lot of other music you're you sort of the end goal seems to be trying to be try to like as as a performer um like recreate the mind of the composer mm-hmm. um and and also in the age of recording it seems to me redundant in some yeah, ways and yeah. i think that's that's also where jazz and like the the sort of paradox of modernity that baroque music really has is yeah. is, is present there you know with with recording i i kind of think i i don't know that i would want to record something like like Debussy's Syrinx for solo flute because mm-hmm. i think i think what Debussy wanted to express is on the page and i think there have been you know maybe one or two people who have come pretty much as close as i could imagine anyone coming to that you know mm-hmm. but with baroque music and with jazz it's a special thing where like it doesn't matter how that person did it um what matters right now is how you're about to do it it's it's much right, more rewarding right. it's much more creative um and it seems much more relevant to me also in an age where mm-hmm. um it seems in an age where where people like everyone is recording everything you know we, we really yeah. need 150 recordings of of debussy syrax that's not clear right. especially if everyone's going to try to follow the instructions you know right um, right but could we have 150 recordings of the bach partita if everyone is sort of doing it um obviously most people just actually end up just playing what's on like they they take a romantic approach to playing yeah, bach. yeah. <laughs> yeah not only in the fact that they sort of do these sort of dynamic shifts and pull the tempo and all that stuff but they take a modern approach to to baroque music in that um they don't really approach it with the kind of jazzy improvisatory quality that you really need to approach it with. Um, And if you do it like that, I think, you know, that is music that is perfect for the age of recording and and streaming and and live concerts. It's, it just, it feels alive to me in a way that, that classical and and romantic music doesn't for now. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I just really like Baroque music, but. (laughs) No, it's, it's funny, right? I mean, yeah, because yeah, if you take, for the song Stella by Starlight, if you take Miles Davis's recording of it on Kind of Blue, and you listen to that, and then you listen to Ella Fitzgerald's performance of it, <laughs> it's hardly the same piece anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's funny with um, jazz, and by extension, Baroque uh, by its definition. But yeah, jazz is like one of those things I'm like happy we have recording technology, right? Where we can capture all these individualistic interpretations of pieces. Mm-hmm. And it's not a coincidence that jazz was becoming itself when recording technology was also becoming a phenomenon, right? So the medium and the art developed in tandem right, in the early 1900s and both influenced each other in really interesting ways. Um, that's a subject for its own podcast one day. But but yeah, no. Um, and of course, you, you will not find a jazz musician who's not also a jazz composer and vice versa. Duke Ellington was as much a band leader as he was a piano player as he was a composer and in the broke that was the spirit of the broke as well exactly it became a thing later that oh i'm i'm just a performer you know right which is unfortunate i think we should all you don't don't have to be great at it you don't have to be famous at it but composing oh i mean trying to compose composing something putting your name to it man that i'm always scary to use the word shortcut if i ever teach students but man that's pretty darn close to one to improving your musicianship yeah no for sure yeah May I, like, as a sort of an example, like, um, I want to sort of talk about an album that I really love and have been listening to sort of yeah. obsessively. Um, 
and I think I think it's a good album that sort of hits the nail on the head of, about like the sort of relationship between Baroque and jazz, where um, it's a solo recital, it's a solo flute recital um, by by Barthold Koiken, who's a okay. Belgian um, Baroque flutist, and um, he's really wonderful and and really intelligent and and a great flutist um, and musician, but. Um, he he plays he plays um, the Bach Partita, he plays the CPE Bach like so, solo sonata that I've been talking about, um, but then um, in, in this recital he he takes um, the this Baroque lutenist actually um, whose name is <laughs> I think Silvius Leopold Weiss. He's, he's quite famous as a luten, as, as a lutenist in his name in his day. That is a lutenist <laughs> name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but you know he has he has like a a ton of of lute suites, and hmm. um, and what what Bart Koiken did was um, he he sort of studied and listened to all of them, and then chose individual movements from a bunch of his suites and picked out ones that would work really well on the flute and made made a whole new suite and he sort of like tra- transcribed tra- transposed them and then he like recomposed entire parts of it to make it more idiomatic for the flute the same way that vice would compose idiomatically for the lute um so it was all this work right he listened to all of these things he basically crafted a whole new composition out of um a bunch of different compositions of this baroque composer and played it on the flute He did the same thing, or he, he did a similar thing with his CPE box sonata, where um, in all of the repeats, he basically recomposes them. Um, like it's it's not even like he repeats it and add it and adds some ornaments. He actually just recomposes it and does a whole different thing that basically only fo- follows the chord progression. But if you listen to it, it sounds like a whole different piece. And it's referencing moments in his vice um, suite, and it's referencing moments in the Bach partita. And he's always doing this. Like the the ornaments are always oh, sort of referencing cross pieces. It, it's it's just this classical album that is really it. Though he's playing like music from the the German Baroque, mm-hmm. the attitude of it seems like he's a jazzer. Like this guy is a yeah, jazzer. He's right. like re, he's recomposing like an an entire piece. He's recomposing like uh, an entire half of another piece, and he's making it all so that they make sense. And you're like catching references from like one piece to another, but it's all contained within like this recital. And, you know, the understanding is the next time around he would play some other pieces and he would do the same thing, but with different pieces and, you know, reference different parts of it and and make up some new um, ornaments and like recompose it, re-improvise it. You know, it's yeah. it's this, you, you would never, you would, that's just not how... It's a world that that is not really inhabited by people who play, who make their, you know, life playing like classical and romantic concerti or something. You know, it's a whole right. different. It's much much closer to jazz than than it is anything else. And, um, you know, that that just it seems to me so much more fun and rewarding to be to be sort of trying to do stuff like that than than anything yeah. else that I can think of. You know, I, I think if I yeah, if I sure. didn't if I didn't have a passion for baroque music, I think. I would probably like jazz after that, but 
alas, you know, here I am, and I really like um, 18th century and 17th century music. There's some cool jazz flute stuff out there too. Um, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think. I mean, one of the. I mean, of course, like the saxophone player, like usually doubles on flute in, in like a big band, like the alto player. But some of Count Basie's compositions and recordings, like Lullaby of Birdland, there's a really awesome flute solo in it. Um, I should send it to you. Yeah. yeah. Pretty sure Hubert Laws has a recording of some, if not all, of the Bach flute sonatas, hmm. um, and those are really cool because, um, okay. yeah, he 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 is, um, you know, maybe maybe like the the sound is not as refined as like some of the the French flutists or something like that, but the the sort of again like the the pocket that he has and, and yeah, the yeah. attitude that he takes where. Um, he really is taking like a jazz attitude to the Baroque, which is the correct attitude to take. Um, mm-hmm. It makes it one of my favorite recordings. Um, oh, you cool. know, if you can listen past the sort of airy sound, um, I think that's it, it. It's one of those recordings that shows you, like, oh yeah, it's kind of the same thing. And with Kate, with Keith Jarrett, it's another. You know, yeah. when he plays Bach, when he plays Bach, it's like, oh yeah, you know, it's it, there's something with Baroque and jazz that. And, There's a huge overlap, and in jazz, Streeter, error in your sound isn't always bad. You know, <laughs> like um, <laughs> Stan Getz had one of the greatest saxophone tones of all time, and it's very airy, but so beautiful. True, true. Yeah, um, John Coltrane even said famously, he said, "I would give up all my technical ability to have the tone of Stan Getz." Yeah, oh, interesting. Which for, Stan, for John Coltrane, that's saying a lot. <laughs> that is, that's one of the most technically gifted. <laughs> Um, or technically talented saxophone players, yeah, um, yeah. But um, yeah. What one one last point before we? Yeah, if, yeah, sure. If, yeah. if you're if we're basically about ready to move on, I just want to get one. Sure, sure, opinion. yeah. It also seems like there there was a lot of almost like a collaborative attitude between Baroque composers, if not a collaborative mm, attitude, mm. almost like a sort of a freewheeling sort of take something here take something from there you know like a lot of open references between baroque composers that i don't see um in the sort of classical and romantic eras um you know there there are moments in the in the say like the talamon fantasies for solo flute where he is he's blatantly stealing from vivaldi um from from bach um from other sources you know it, it it almost seems like um kind of like that, that that also seems like like a jazzy thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. Where where everyone kind of like everyone like you you write a tune and like that's your tune, fine. But you know, I can like riff on it too, and, and it kind of goes along yeah. with um, like the composer is like a performer, and a lot of the compositions, quote unquote, were really just sort of notated performances, you know. Yeah. 
so like if someone like if someone like Talamon, you know, he he like riffs off of like in the third part of in the third like movement or whatever of his second fantasy for flute, um, is basically a direct quote of um, the Largo movement from Vivaldi. Uh, from, yeah, from Vivaldi's um, Winter, from, from oh, the Four Seasons. Okay. Um, but yeah. if Talamon like you know picked up his violin and was just messing around by playing Vivaldi's Winter and added a few ornaments and sort of recomposed it a bit the way that you do when you're playing Baroque music. Um, and it was like, oh, that's pretty cool. I'm going to write that down. You know, even though it's sort of a blatant ripoff, whose is it? It it didn't really seem to matter at that time. And that's sort of like how it's really fun to like study a lot of Baroque composers because then you, you sort of you sort of get into like the culture of it and um, and you sort of start noticing that, you know, everyone was sort of riffing off of each other you know like there, there's right. Right. um there's an apocryphal story that bach wrote the goldberg variations because handel wrote a series of variations on a on a ground bass in g major mm. um and and he said you know i think i can one-up this guy that also is like a very jazzer attitude like oh you, you're gonna do this thing i'm gonna do this thing too and it's gonna be it's gonna be like more dope um you know i don't know it's it, it just seems like that that time was so interesting for music and you know right. being a composer and being a performer in a way that that future times didn't really seem to have that in the air until again until jazz sort of cropped up. Yeah, I mean like the, the spirit of the of the jam session, right? And like the Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, exactly. That's what I think like makes the Miles Davis album kind of blue. Like so I think it's it, it's a it's an interesting album, right? Because at once it's not that jazzy of a jazz album, right? In the sense that it's it's not the swinginest. It's not the. It's not. Um, I mean, a lot. If you listen to some of the tracks, they almost don't even sound like jazz, as you would think of. You know, big band jazz or, or a jazz quartet or something. So it's that. But at the same time, it's like at the same time, it's also the most jazzy, jazzy album in the sense that what kind of blue really is is just a recorded jam session, and what happened was. Miles Davis, he he didn't even send the other players in the in the in the in, in the group. He didn't give them the sheet music ahead of time. They got it when they showed up to the recording session to make the album, and they recorded each song in one take. So, nice. <laughs> so it's so I I don't even call it just the greatest jazz album. I, or it's not even a jazz album. I call it. it's just a music album. Well, it's interesting too because each song is not in it, the whole concept for it was that each track was in a particular mode. So not so much a key, but a mode. So hmm. one was in Dorian, one was in Mixolydian, one was in Phrygian, one was in Lydian. Um, and the whole, and each song would maybe have two chords in it at most. So what Miles Davis was trying to do was to try to free up this obsession in jazz of thinking harmonically, thinking about chords and everything, right? And chord progressions and bass lines. Instead, to think just melodically, right? So you're not thinking about Two five one progressions and a C seven chord to an F minor nine chord, right? No, you're just thinking about melody instead now. And of course, and then Miles Davis, you know, counts it off, and whatever happened, that became what they put on the album. So the opening track, uh, uh, "So What," which is um, on the album, it it opens with just Paul Chambers on bass and Bill Evans on piano, just kind of fooling around and finding their way to the melody. And just cool to know that was completely improvised in the recording studio right there and they just rolled off of it and it's just funny they stamped it and it's one of the greatest albums of all time 
Oh, that's really cool. I didn't know. I didn't know any of that. Um, yeah, I, I, I will second kind of blue as, as I mean, it's, it's stupid to say, so we should just cut this. But I, I love kind of blue as, as one of the it's one of my favorite albums. And everyone says that. So, you know, it, do, it doesn't need to be said. But <laughs> well, that's the bigger point, isn't it? It's not just Jazzer's favorite album. It's not just jazz musicians favorite album. It's so many people's favorite album, like from All Walks Live, who love all sorts of music, maybe even people that aren't into jazz. They just True. love kind of blue. So I think, you know, a more meta approach here is this Renaissance, I'm sorry, Renaissance, this Baroque approach, which later manifested itself into the jazz approach. Maybe this is like the quintessential humanist approach to music, you know, and that's why the album was so successful. It's it, it, everyone, it just resonated with everyone, everyone, everyone could, everyone could connect to it. I'm totally on board with that. I mean, I'm sure there'll be like nitpickers who are listening who will disagree, but, um, you know, based on what I'm interested in in music, it, it seems to be like the arch goal of like music making and being a human in relation to music. It seems to me that there's not a lot that is more rewarding than, um, than jamming. Yeah. And, right. and you know, that's, the, the the jam session is 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 best suited for for jazz and for baroque music. It's funny when I whenever I teach um, students on trumpet or or piano, they're getting into jazz for the first time. Sometimes they're, you know, middle school age or like even in college. You know, when um, trumpet players or just other music majors that just had had never played jazz before, but are starting to get into it, which I thought was always awesome. Um, you know, I'd always ask them, you know, all right, well, do you improvise and and they'd always say, "Oh no, 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 no! I'm not, I'm not there yet. I'm just mastering the style, and 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 or I'm mastering, you know, how to swing and how to, you know, groove on eighth notes and sort of stuff, and and learning the jazz repertoire." And I'd be like, "No, no, no, no! I mean, you assumed I meant improvise on your instrument, but we all improvise. Like, um, right now, I'm improvising <laughs> as we're having this conversation, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, again, back to what Bill, what Bill Evans said." a minute of music in a minute's time, right? That's by definition improvisatory, but the real timeness of jazz and broke, just something unfolding naturally and open to the influences around it. That's just, that's just the human experience condensed into an art form. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To your point about how everyone loves it, like not just jazzers and mm-hmm. honestly, not just musicians, but, um, right. Right. You know, we had some issues with our, plumbing a few weeks ago because we live in we live in like a very old apartment building um so that mm-hmm. just happens but um yeah. but our handyman was in and um i forget why but we had kind of blue going in the back um oh nice and he was like fixing our pipes and then just sort of looked over and he called out he called called out to me and he was like is that kind of blue and i was like yeah and he was like oh i love that <laughs> shit and i was like what <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that is great. Um, that is great. You know, it's there's a lot of music that's like really great, um, where if you play it to people who don't know about that kind of music, um, they'll say like something to the tune of, "This sounds really cool, and I'm sure it's great, but I just don't get it." You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of great music that's sure. like that, sure, but sure. really like the top of the top music literally everyone listens to it and they all just get it like it, it just makes sense that this is yeah. this is it kind of blues up there you know a yeah. lot of stuff by bach i think the reason it's so universal is no one sits there and is like uh, you know i don't really get it it's like no he makes you get it 
yeah no it's yeah it's like that universal that fundamental yeah there's just it's it's that well written how about that yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's that well made <laughs> yeah there's no yeah. secret to it except for the secret of actually you know being a genius something we will have to put something we'll have to put in the show notes is um kind of blue it's just one of those albums even more than most that it just sounds better on vinyl <laughs> and so there's this youtube channel called mr vinyl obsessive and all he does is he just rips at a very high bit rate he just rips vinyl records and uploads them to youtube or on the internet and stuff and um and yeah he just digitizes vinyl and yeah with kind of blue especially the opening tracks so what because there's so much i mean a lot of the tracks on that album actually but Let's take the first track, So What? There's so much silence and space in it, especially in the opening, the improvised part. The vinyl hiss just adds to the tension um, and things. And um, I know this this is something that you, that you would agree with or at least relate to, which is people often, for good reason, talk about the, the energy of performing live, performing on a stage, right? And I... I agree. Yes, I I love performing live. There's an intangible energy there that just makes it more fun, more exciting, and more real. Overlooked, though, is the energy of the recording studio, the art and the emotion in collaboration in uh, in, in in a sense um, of of documenting what you're about to make take place. I think is really cool. For sure. I mean, even just the energy of the the microphone. It's it's, um, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, I, I would argue that it's, it's in some ways it's, it's greater than the art, than the energy of, of a live performance, because, um, in, in a live performance, you know, you are playing for someone like often I'll see someone in the audience and, and think of myself as, as playing for them. Um, mm-hmm. and, but there's still ultimately something, uh, obviously there, there, there's something ephemeral about it. Right. But when when there's it's just you and the mic um, and whoever is is um, is the audio engineer, it's not like you have no audience. You know, there, there's always some audience. If if nothing else, there's yeah. you. Um, there's also your 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 microphone. You know, um, so you if you can if you can get past that initial step that there aren't like you know a, there's not like a huge crowd of humans watching you. Um, there's still someone watching you usually. Um, if you can still tap into the performance aspect while you're recording i think there's something really special to be had because you can take risks with a microphone that you can't with performance mm-hmm. um you don't need to worry about say for example like projection or like if your timbre is going to cut through yeah. to the back of the hall you can you can really right, worry right. about a much more intimate setting and um and then the fact that there's always going to be a take two available means that you can take certain risks that at least me, I wouldn't be caught that doing on stage because I know that if it fails, sure, sure. I can abandon it right away. Um, yeah. So actually, I, I find that it's people who speak about the energy of a concert hall and the, the specialness of it. Obviously, it's very special, but I wonder if they're just determined to ignore the microphone because I think some really special moments can be caught on on mic in a studio. If you If you bring the same kind of energy and... And if you bring that kind of energy and then you realize that there's always a take two, so you can always go, you know, when there's a mic in front of me, my attitude is always go as far as you'd be comfortable going in a performance and then take two steps further than that. 
Um, and that's that's really where the magic is. And, you know, you can't do that in the performance. So, yeah, no, it's it's funny because people will ask, like, all right, if you can go to you know any any concert ever, you know, which one would it be? You take like the great the great concerts like Billy Joel at Shea Stadium or something. Right. Um, but people always ask that question. But the question I want to answer is if I could sit in on any recording session of all time, oh, it's like Beatles, Sgt. Pepper. Miles Davis kind of blue. I mean, oh man, there's some really good ones. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All of the Glenn Gould recordings, yeah. which he, he he had a similar attitude. I was thinking of him when you said about kind of blue how he didn't um, show 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 the musicians the music beforehand. Like they, they were they were all just sort of riffing yeah. on it in real time. Yeah. You know, Gould has said in the past that um, he has showed up to the recording studio barely having practiced the music um and like he's practiced it enough to be able to play through it yeah but he hasn't practiced it enough to have an opinion on it and you know mm. he'll go into the he'll go into the studio with like you know two dozen viable interpretations and 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 he really saw the work of recording as the work of paring that down to one you know, yeah. so that, again, there's something there, and, and I think that attitude really works for Bach, for for Baroque music in general. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, where you you really you really don't want to get too much in your own head about how something goes, because you always want to leave open the option of it going some other way, because of you know that's just how the day is, and that's how music ought to be. All right, Streeter, what do you have for me here? So I'm going to send you a picture on Slack, and um, I just want you to sort of tell me what you're looking at. All right. All right. Was I good enough? I am intrigued. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that was was perfect. I am intrigued. What is this going to be? Whoa. Okay. This is... Okay, interesting. So... You just sent me a picture of an orange, I want to say, clavichord. No, 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 no. It's a piano. Wait. Harps it. (laughs) It's okay. So it's orange. And what it is, is let's see. Lowest note. It looks like a F. So it's about, you know, almost four octaves, but it's, it's orange and it's, it's uh ah uh, it's like rolling <laughs> i'm like all of a sudden illiterate looking at this picture <laughs> even more than usual <laughs> um, i have to admit it's kind of fun torturing you like this okay so it's it's um all right so we have a piano keyboard or what appears to be a black and white keyboard and then four arched arched rolling arch column waves across the the piano frame where the strings are attached and it looks like i can't tell if those are hammers or if it's if it's going to be plucked underneath that mm. 
it's an orange piano that looks old. I'll, just, I'll say <laughs> it's an yeah, it's an orange piano that looks old and has some weird curves on it. This is a curvy yeah. piano. This is interesting. I've never seen something like this before. That's because it doesn't really. I mean, it exists obviously enough to take this picture, but mm -hmm. it doesn't. It doesn't. It's not really an, an instrument. Um, it is a a realized version. Of of of, a, of an instrument that that Leonardo da Vinci uh, sketched in one of his notebooks. Oh, um, it's this is it's what da Vinci called a a, a, a viola organista, um, which was meant to be a, a mix between a violin and an organ. So j just to to sort of give a little bit of okay. backstory, okay. Um, I, I'm, I'm in the middle of this this wonderful um, long biography of of Leonardo da Vinci by 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 Walter Isaacson. Isaacson, um, on, on your recommendation, and um, mm -hmm. and a few weeks ago, I got I got to this part about how how Da Vinci was actually um, a musician as well, on top of all the other things that we know him as. He was actually sent as a court um, as a musician, as, as a court as a court entertainer for the for the for the Sforza family in in Milan, um, because he had invented like a special um, uh, a lyre de braccio, which is basically like a a, a lyre that you play on your shoulder, which is a precursor to the violin. Um, mm. And and he he had also on top of that, which was a practical instrument. He had also sort of invented, quote unquote, sketched out a bunch of impractical instruments um, in his notebooks. Um, and, you know, they were like um, like a bell that would be um, that had hammers attached to it, like a keyboard, in various parts of its body. So you could play it hmm. like a keyboard, but the keyboard, but the hammers would strike at different parts of the bell to create <laughs> um, like a pitched bell. Um, same That's thing, cool. same idea with like a snare drum, but with holes like a flute, so that you could do have a pitched snare drum. Um, and and one of them that he never actually ended up inventing was was this viola organista, which is a mix between violin and organ. So what you're seeing is you see those keys. That's obviously yeah, like a like a piano and organ, just a standard keyboard. But the the curves. Um, there, there are four yeah. of them, and and you're right. It's not they're not actually hammers, um, like like on okay. a piano. There, there's I'm not sure if you can see it in this picture, but there's actually um, a little part that's basically a bow, that is the the there's there's cylinders like they're they're circular. The four oh, curves are actually cylinders, and right they there. and they function as a bow. And underneath, which you can't see, there are four pedals, one operating each of those four okay. things. So if you, again, we'll put the picture in the show notes, so it would really be helpful if you were looking at this. But if you, I think if you hit the pedal, it will rotate one of those four cylinders and it will create um, create the the sort of sound of a violin bow being, being dragged across the string. And then it depends on which keys you're hitting down um, hmm. to, to create the sound. So it, so it is this, it, it will sound like a violin, but you could play it like an organ. Is the theory? I'm not. I've actually not heard this being played, and I don't know the extent to which um, you could play any sort of repertoire on this. It might just be a sort of like novelty gimmick. Um, you can play the whole violin repertoire. Shooter. Come on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I guess so. <laughs> so yeah, I don't oh, know. Wow. What, what are your What are your thoughts? Oh, that is awesome. That is so cool. Yeah. So okay, that makes more sense now. It is. So when you showed this to me, it was almost an optical illusion. It felt like my brain was trying to figure it out. <laughs> uh, like, all right, there's a 
keys you push with your fingers, but then what happens? <laughs> I couldn't quite <laughs> dissect it, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's interesting. That makes more sense now. And um, oh, that's super curious. Yeah. Um, it kind of goes to what we were saying earlier, unintentionally, I guess. Just musicians being, I mean, or the organists being engineers as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Th- this um, is a feat of engineering. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And um. I think this is really cool. Yeah, I wonder if this actually works, if they got it to, or I mean, it could be a case where they built like a replica, but like from a physics perspective, it's just like too hard to actually make it practical, even in the slightest chance. So I'm curious if this actually does produce something close to the sound he envisioned. So, well, obviously we can't know about the sound that he envisioned, but my understanding is that this this actually does work. This is a working Oh, it does? Okay, model. it works. The question okay. is if it's able to play anything real like could i play could i play a fugue on this not clear yeah right because you do have you know it's it's interesting where it's an interesting thought to say i want to have something that can be polyphonic like an organ but mm-hmm. i want the the sound to be like a violin where you're drawing a, a yeah. bow across a string but you're running into a problem right away which is that um drawing a bow across a string immediately limits what you can do with everything on that string. So, you know, could you play a fugue on this? I'm not actually sure because if you hit one of the pedals and got one of those cylinders rolling, um, would you then, would every other key in that sort of area of the cylinder be out of business? Could you, like, would you, are you basically limiting the piano to be a single tone instrument, which would defeat the whole purpose of being a piano? Um, right, right. <laughs> it, it really, it, what really interests me about this is that, um, you know, for, for, for most of my life, I, I, I sort of thought of instruments as sort of having cropped up by accident and, you know, there are better instruments to be had, but looking at this kind of made me realize, I wonder if there's actually some sort of like laws of physics that govern what instruments can do, what things like you can be expressive on a violin in a way that you cannot be on a keyboard and you can be polyphonic on a keyboard in a way that you cannot be on a violin. And those two things right. will just never melt. Right. Because when you try to make them, you run into you run into things like this works, like you can play notes on it. But could you play the Bach partitas on these on this? You know? Right. right. Uh, uh, it, it just seems like yeah. I'm looking at this thing and I'm thinking, you know, I never considered the violin or the organ to be like at the edge of some sort of like laws of physics but i'm looking at this and i'm kind of thinking you know what i think we got it like i think we figured out the instruments like pretty well actually considering <laughs> yeah yeah i mean well it's kind of cool just like the the thought process and mindset behind this like da vinci was trying to create the first synthesizer essentially e- exactly exactly what he needed was <laughs> right. a computer right yeah yeah he's you know he's oh you're so right you're so microchip. right yeah 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 um uh that's Oh, that's really interesting. And um, what I think is curious, though, too, right, is knowing Da Vinci, right? Because I read that book, the Walter Isaacson biography, which is phenomenal, absolutely brilliant biography. Mm-hmm. What's curious, though, is um, Da Vinci was always someone who did his homework. He took his measurements. He did his observations. He, he. So I'm curious from, like, the physics and mathematical perspective in here, like the challenges that are presented and stuff, Um like, where does the power come from to, like, spin these, right? Is there, like, a weight system that you push the pedal and it comes from? Are you 
pedaling like a bike or like pumping a pedal like organs were back in the days it was like a foot pump you had to Mm. prime it (laughs) so it's just ah it's there's some interesting engineering challenges here but it's funny that's not too different than i was just showing you earlier my brand spanking new flugelhorn i got right it's a modern instrument but it still has a flaw that all trumpets will have which is there's a few notes that are always going to be out of tune on it just because it's a law of physics that you know with the way the overtone harmonic series lines up there's going to be a few out of tune notes you have to adjust for even the most advanced trumpet you could buy anywhere will still have that problem there's just no way around it (laughs) you know and so but there's kind of a beauty to it i always thought it's just engineering is just i mean what engineering is is trying to use the tools in the language of math that we've come up with together just to try to fix some problems but there's going to be fundamental problems that we just can't can't we can compensate but we just can't fix and you know like conservation of energy is like one here right um you know uh Energy is neither, I mean, mass is neither created or destroyed, right? And um, energy, right? There's no such thing as like a perpetual motion machine, right? That Da Vinci right. tried to make. He really tried to make a machine that could just run indefinitely. But he eventually came to the conclusion that you just can't make a perpetual motion machine. Right, right. Which he kind of discovered and occurred to him is actually even more interesting, right? Yeah. Than if he could, right? Right? Why why is it? What law of physics is there that that this is the case, that this can't be done? So um it's just funny to get into the mindset of like this practical question of trying to make a, a keyboard sound like a violin. I mean, both have strings, both play notes, both are Western instruments. But the engineering challenges are so high it just may not be possible. <laughs> yeah. And and you know, I, I sort of like half thought about it, but I didn't put it in so many words. But you're so right that you're so right that Da Vinci was trying to create the first synthesizer. Like technology really, like digital technology really set us free in that sound. Because again, like all these things that I listed where he's trying to make like a piano that sounds like a bell or a snare drum that sounds like a flute. <laughs> right, right. Um, right. You know, what he's trying to do is he's trying to, he's, he's, in so many words, he's trying to create a synthesizer and yeah right right and yeah yeah um, as is so often the case with with geniuses like da vinci you know what he wants to get is so far ahead of what is even thought of as possible in his time that you know he's stuck trying to labor away at these sort of ridiculous looking machines um where we we now you know we can actually create something probably much closer to what he had in mind um when he thought about this this viola organista um, with a synthesizer, yeah. you know, as that's probably much closer to what he had in mind than um, this thing. Beautiful as it is, I can only imagine that it is a huge labor to play it. Because, um, because you're right, yeah. you do have to <laughs> put in the energy to keep those wheels turning somehow. And I bet it's in those pedals. I bet you had to kick those pedals like a bitch. <laughs> so, yeah, I bet it. So he also in- invented the first peloton. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, it also just seems in the spirit of, again, I mean, Da Vinci was alive, what, born in the late 1400s? Yeah, I think mid 1400s. Late 1400s. And yeah. So, I mean, not quite the Baroque, but still kind of the same spirit that became the Baroque, the Renaissance, right? Yeah. And that's a spirit that, again, I think we've lost and I think we've sort of rediscovered, but that's a spirit that transcends music to what we were saying to the specifics we were talking about earlier like when i was talking about kind of blue um the album this universalness it's important to remember up until only a few hundred years ago 
we didn't really have this division of subjects that we have now, right? It was it was just common thought in in just um, academia and in people's minds and scientists and artists that the same harmonic ratios that that govern the laws of Western music and the principles of architecture and design were also the same things that also controlled the orbit of the planets and stuff, right? And scientific principles. It, it wasn't, we didn't see all these things as these distinct subjects we've, we've created now with all these, you go to a university and there's the college of medicine and the school of fine arts and right. But yeah. back in these days, it was just kind of one humanistic grand subject with all these chapters in it and we're all related, which is why Da Vinci was a musician and an architect and, uh, and, a doctor, surgeon, right? It was all these things, but so was Galileo. Galileo studied music immensely and was a very good uh, musician. Um, Martin Luther, who led the Reformation and stuff, he wrote music. He wrote some very good music that we study in music school. So, or like, um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was a, who was a, who was a flutist. Um, Oh, I I didn't know he was a flutist flutist and a composer. And he he actually has a wonderful arrangement for solo flute of Vivaldi's spring from the four seasons. Love it. That was yeah, brilliant. You know, that is so great. It's Benjamin when, Franklin, right? It's yeah. like <laughs> you know, there's there's yeah. a reason that we call them Renaissance men, and and I, I think I think we might be on the cusp of it yet again. I think I think Silicon mm-hmm. Valley has done something special for for, for the world and sort of bringing this sort of Renaissance attitude back into back sort of front and center. Mm. You know, um, I don't know. I I think I I feel like this something exciting in the air that I haven't felt before, like, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, like, it's, it's sort of seeping out into the culture at large, I think. Um, they, like, the, the, the unity of knowledge is, is cool again. I think it goes in, it goes in and out, you know, of phases. <laughs> but, but I think yeah. it's, it's cool now, again, to, to, to do a lot of things and to be interested in a lot of things. You know, there was a time maybe 10, 15 years ago when, when, the coolest thing you could be was like, you know, like a specialist, like an expert. But I think now yeah. it's the, the culture is changing again. But. Yeah. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg was a psychology major at Harvard. Oh, really? He was not a computer science major. Yeah. 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 Or an engineering major. Yes. Yeah, he was majoring in psychology, which when you think of Facebook kind of makes sense. Yeah, it really does. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. But um, no. And, and of course, you know, the stories of Steve Jobs, he didn't really he didn't study engineering. Right. He studied design and like eastern philosophy <laughs> when, when he was at a liberal arts college in oregon so it's yeah you know, um look at, at the renaissance right that in that book right it's talked about how there's this open sharing of knowledge that was just embraced right there were blacksmiths that worked in the same stores as artists did and painters did right um brunelleschi's dome is it a masterpiece of architecture or is it a masterpiece of art or engineering yeah yeah people in that time would not would not have made that distinction exactly yeah, yeah. so yeah I, yeah I hope i hope we i hope we we sort of live in a world you know where where we sort of re rediscover those principles i, th- I think we are I'm, yeah. I'm cautiously optimistic i don't know about you but i think we are too and i think this piano is gonna do it I think <laughs> <laughs> yeah dude when we start having <laughs> parties again and and dinner parties, yeah. <laughs> what, what is this? Oh, funny you ask. <laughs> yeah, this would be a great thing to have in the corner of your room.